This podcast episode is sponsored by Statera. Statera is a web-based application that helps youth athletes and their stakeholders estimate training load, track maturation status, monitor readiness, and manage injury. Put together by coaches working with busy youth athletes, Statera helps keep things simple and brings together the most important training information in one place to ensure that effective athlete-centered decisions can be made. No more complicated Excel tutorials and spreadsheets, just upload your athletes' data and their training schedule and start to take control of their training commitments and workload. Make more informed decisions and protect your athletes' well-being, supporting their performance. Statera takes your data very seriously. GDPR compliant and registered with the ICO, choose from a range of maturation indices and validated measures or customize your own. Statera can record any training variable and all your data is fully exportable. To reach out today and get a free walkthrough, head over to www.statera.uk. That's S-T-A-T-E-R-A dot U-K. Welcome to the LTAD Network podcast. I'm your host, Rob Anderson, and today I'm talking to Dr. Sylvia Moosekops. Sylvia is a lecturer in strength and conditioning at Cardiff Metropolitan University. She's recently completed her PhD, which investigated the effects of growth, maturation, and training on strength and power development in young female artistic gymnasts. Her interest in the topic was inspired from her own experiences as a young gymnast and her time coaching artistic gymnasts. Sylvia works as a strength and conditioning coach in the Youth Physical Development Centre at Cardiff Metropolitan University. She currently leads the programming and delivery for the young artistic female gymnasts and has recently started strength conditioning provision in local gymnastics clubs and delivering SNC CPD workshops for Welsh gymnastics. So, welcome to the podcast, Sylvia. It's great to be able to get you on today. Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs> So for those who haven't come across you before and your research and, and the kind of area you've been involved in with Cardiff Met, give us a bit of an understanding and a background of you individually. What was your kind of first involvement in sport and what were some of the sports you sampled and how did that develop over your kind of teenage years? Yeah, so I uh, was a very energetic child. Um, my mum used to take me to the park every single day to try and wear me out. Absolutely loved like, going on the monkey bars and everything else and and we were actually on holiday and I think I was about six years old and there happened to be kind of a gymnastics coach there and she just said to my mum, you know, you need to get her into gymnastics. I think she'd be great, blah, blah, blah. So took me, took me back, got home and my mum founded a local gymnastics club. Um, but when I went to trial for the class, it was kind of one of those things where you could only start doing once a week as a kind of recreational level before they took you into the squad. And my mum was really keen for them to take me to the squad because she just wanted to get rid of me to burn off that energy a few times a week. So she actually begged the gymnastics coach to take me on um, and they were a really new clubs. So they said, yeah, OK. And luckily for them and me, it, it actually turned out really well because of all that probably swinging on the bars and things. When we did some initial tests, I could already do some pull ups. So they were quite impressed with that. And yeah, the love for gymnastics kind of stemmed from there, a bit of an adrenaline junkie when I was younger as well and yeah so then did that from the age of six to 14 um, and I was that classic probably early specialization athlete as well that didn't do any other sports um, which probably has had a few negative outcomes moving forward but um, I got interested in coaching then actually retired from gymnastics at 14 because 
you know, got really, it got a bit difficult as I got um, more mature, I suppose. And then absolutely loved the coaching side of things, especially working with the gymnasts. So especially the young kids, I did lots of my, um, I did lots of coaching alongside some coaches in the club to begin with. Did my level one um, qualification when I was 14. I think back then you could do that that early. And then did my level two as soon as I could when I was 17. And then went off to university and, and got attached to a really good club in Cardiff. Um, and they kind of pushed my gymnastics coaching on a, a little bit more. But at the same time at the university, um, I was taking my strength and conditioning modules and got quite a few lectures from the likes of Rodri Lloyd, Professor Rodri Lloyd now and um, Dr. Rob Mayers. And they kind of sparked a bit of an interest in, in youth strength and conditioning for me. Um, and I started to think, oh, this could, this might have a bit of a good tie over into gymnastics. And I wasn't really aware of uh, many clubs using that provision. So after that, did um, my undergraduate dissertation, did a kind of mini training study, um, was eight weeks. And I trained um, prepubertal female gymnasts in the club I worked in. It was all kind of field based to begin with. So um, didn't have much equipment and it was kind of like learning on the job, really very, uh, very new to S&C as well. So definitely made a couple of mistakes along the way there. But um, yeah, from that study, we took some basic measures, um, just things like uh, leg stiffness stuff from some hopping, um, did drop jump, took some RSI scores, also looked at their movement competency and their trunk endurance. And, and what we actually found was that we didn't really see many changes in things like leg stiffness and, and RSI, but they did make some good improvements in movement competency. So we started to think, well, actually, maybe to get those types of adaptations in, in gymnasts that might be already quite well trained, maybe they need to be you know, training for longer periods and training with higher um, loading schemes and other things. So, yeah, started to think about that then, um, but then went and did a master's. Um, and whilst I was doing the master's, I trained while I coached alongside Rodri and um, John Radner in the Youth Physical Development Centre at Cardiff Met. Um, and they kind of mentored me um, throughout my two years master's. And then basically, Rodri was like, do you want to do a PhD? <laughs> and I was like, um, not really, not really sure it's for me. I was a, a bit kind of nervous about it, to be honest, to begin with. It's quite a commitment. Um, but once we kind of spoke about the project and, and really the final study being that kind of long intervention study that kind of thought would be really interesting that that got me signed up <laughs> so mm. yeah so it's quite a, a kind of logical progression from the, the little mini eight-week training study you did to go I think we need a bit more time or a bit more influence on the on the program to see if we get results and that's what kind of the, the PhD has been about yeah definitely so although it was quite a small kind of study and it was only kind of an, an undergraduate study it definitely sparked something in me that thought this could be quite cool and um, there's definitely a gap in gymnastics for, you know, that type of training. Um, probably some myths around, you know, um, whether or not it's going to make the gymnast really bulky from coaches, maybe, or reduce their flexibility, um, or is it dangerous, like those sorts of things. And obviously, as I continue to study, I start to realise, you know, that this isn't really the case, but can we actually influence, you know, the wider gymnastics community with this, this study as well, which... Hopefully, I think things are definitely changing. Um, 
I think you had Dan Lonsdale on here um, previously, and he's doing some fantastic work. And I think strength and conditioning is now kind of becoming more normal in the gymnastics community. So that's really, really nice to see. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's a good discussion we have with Dan around, you know, that kind of uh, learning across both barriers. Like, I think, I think there's some stuff we can learn from gymnastics and also, you know, as you said, maybe culturally gymnastics didn't have that SNC kind of attitude and, and there's some stuff that can go both ways. So, okay. yeah, I guess it helps specifically for someone like yourself to have that extensive gymnastics background. You can kind of, is it not necessarily authority, but a bit of a better understanding of the language, the terminology to be able to say, well, actually, you know, here's how it applies to these certain movements or these certain actions. And, you know, some of these fears we might have actually might not be completely accurate. Yeah, definitely. I think it does really it does really help to be honest um and because I'd done I was kind of on the coaching scene in in the local area for yeah five or so years before doing the PhD so that really helped if I'm honest getting um clubs to buy in and and coaches kind of trusted me a little bit so yeah definitely learning both ways as well there's loads of things I think from a, a youth SNC point of view that we can take from gymnastics um moving forward are you still coaching gymnastics um, as, as a sport or is it primarily SNC now? No, it's primarily SNC now. Uh, I stopped coaching about four years ago, um, just as kind of the PhD stuff was kicking off. I, it's such a big commitment. I hats off to all the gymnastics coaches because, um, yeah, I spent 10 years doing, you know, every weekend and multiple times a week. You know, these coaches are in the gym four or five times a week, sometimes six. And uh that on top of the PhD and working as well um, part-time and trying to do PhD was just a little bit much so yeah focused now more on the strength and conditioning slant of it all. Mm. So let's dive into some of the research that you've done so we know we've got that little eight-week training study that you did where we saw okay you might not see some um, physical changes in terms of some metrics but we see some movement competency changes which perhaps mm. there's there's an element that there is something to be to be done here so what what were the next kind of steps in terms of the PhD research and the, and the rabbit hole you went down there yeah so I suppose we we start with the end in mind um so we knew that we wanted ideally to run this this long-term big training study um which was going to be um a big job um and we knew if we wanted to to run this we'd need to kind of work backwards so we were looking at the effects of, uh, well, if I give you the PhD title overall, it's, it's the effects of growth, maturation and training on strength and power um, in young female gymnasts. Um, so to begin with, we had to kind of start with a reliability study because the strength kind of protocols out there. So, you know, your, your typical one rep max test. I was planning on using girls that had no previous um, strength and conditioning experience were very young um, so getting them to do a one rep max test probably wasn't going to be appropriate um, could have done a, a multiple RM uh, protocol but that can be quite fatiguing and we worked well Rodri had worked alongside um, Greg Half and had kind of built a, a relationship there and he obviously is, um, has published loads and loads of research in, on the isometric mid dipole protocol so we started to look what was out there already and there wasn't really any data on, on really young children. Um, I think Dos Santos had done some in adolescent male soccer players, but nothing really in girls, nothing in um, prepubertal kids. So that was the first thing we need to 
to basically establish whether or not that protocol would be reliable. And if it was, then we could uh, use some of those measures moving forward um, to evaluate the, the girls from a training perspective, but also look at kind of what's happening to their maximum strength as they're maturing. And that was where the cross-sectional studies um, came into play later on down the line. So if I give you kind of the order, we had this um, reliability study to begin with of the isometric midlife pool. And then we did a, a big kind of cross-sectional study testing 120 gymnasts, looking at the isometric midlife pool, counter movement jump, squat jump, drop jump, um, 20 meter sprint speed, some submax hopping, <laughs> and also um, we wanted to look at a gymnastic specific measure. So we looked at some 2D video analysis of a uh, vertical straight jump from a, a springboard as a kind of a vaulting measure. So yeah, big kind of battery of tests there. Um, and then from that, then we, we started looking at the effects of the training, but I'm sure we'll come on to that in a minute. <laughs> mm. So you, obviously we, you're establishing that first study, okay, the IMTP is, is gonna be a fairly reliable measure within this group specifically young female gymnasts and then looking moving on okay how do these things interrelate with some of the more dynamic efforts of sprinting jumping and maturation so talk us through that study what what were some of the the measures you took from a maturation perspective and what were some of the results and relationships that you found between those measures yeah so um we kind of found if we start off with the isometric mid pool um as the gymnasts were growing and maturing well first of all we split them into three groups and we used percent of predicted adult height to determine their maturity status um, I don't know if any if people are really familiar with that but um, you can use that measure or you can use uh, Mirwald's maturity offset measure and because the girls were quite far away from um, the pubertal growth spurt, the percent of predicted adult height measure is supposed to be a bit more accurate um, if they're quite far away from, from that point in time. Um, and also it's supposed to be a bit more accurate with uh, people that might be early or late maturing. So gymnasts can be typically um, scouted for being late maturers. So the maturity um, offset might not have been as appropriate for them. So that was why we used the percent of predicted adult height and we grouped them into three groups. So we had the early prepubertal group, then we had a later prepubertal group, and then a pubertal group. And I would have loved to have had a post-pubertal group, but it was really difficult to recruit. So kind of had to knock that on the head. A lot of gymnasts tend to kind of um, move on to other things, I suppose, around that time. Um, and then, yeah, we were just looking at differences then between those three groups. Um, so with advancing maturity, um, but with the isometric midlife pool, what we found was that their absolute strength, so the absolute peak force was um, significantly increasing as they were maturing, but then interestingly, their relative force was just remaining the same. So that was quite a key finding um, and something that we, we wanted to make sure that we targeted in the training study. Um, so that was the isometric midlife pool. Um, and then with the, the kind of jumping protocols, most of them were again, increasing with advancing maturity. So their jump height was improving. Um, some of the impulse measures were improving. But then when we got to the um, sprint speed and the standing long jump test um, and 
some of the vaulting measures, we were seeing that they significantly improved from the early to the late um, stage, so the prepubertal stage, but then there was a bit of a plateau. Um, so that kind of told us that, you know, we can't just rely on maturity to just improve all these measures as kids are getting more mature. Um, it's not necessarily going to improve them. So maybe we need to think about training them throughout all different stages of maturation and, and not just rely on growth and maturation to get those significant improvements. Um, so again, that was quite a key finding that, okay, things might improve as we, as we get older, but they're not improving at all stages. So what training can we do to target them when they're not? Um, so yeah, that was, was kind of what we found there. Um, and then I probably didn't go over the, the mid-dipole results um, well enough there, but basically with the isometric mid-dipole, our peak force measures were most reliable and the rate of force development measures were, were really quite noisy. So kind of need to be careful using those ones. Um, but in terms of those, those peak measures, those are really reliable and, and safe to use with kids with no previous training age. So that was a big win. <laughs> hmm. No, fantastic. So yeah, it was interesting because when I was, I was reading through your results, I, was, I kind of read that sentence a few times of like the absolute, but the, the relative didn't, I was trying to wrap my head around that and I realized what you're kind of saying there. So yeah they're effectively as they're maturing they can they can pull harder and get a yeah. bigger peak score but can, you know relative to their body weight actually it's fairly similar across peer groups even with maturation so it's potentially yeah. a, a body size or a body mass kind of factor playing in there yeah and that, um it was consistent with some of um stacy emmons research in some soccer players um i think she might have even had a post group and I wonder if if we had that post-pubertal group, would we actually see a decrease? So would we see a significant decrease? You know, as they're going through puberty, especially girls, they're getting that increased fat mass, um, less kind of relative, sorry, less uh, lean mass. So yeah, from a, a kind of performance perspective, especially for you know a population like gymnastics that um, relies on relative strength and power um, to be able to you know, do all these skills in the air and, and get nice and high to do their skills. Um, we can probably try and train that. Mm. So that's really interesting because effectively it's a bit of a, a nature nurture argument in that nature is going to give us a bit of this for free, but mm. actually there's a bit we're going to, if, uh, if we want to push it onto another level, we're going to have to invest some time on developing those qualities a bit further than just what maturation will give us. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose from a, a strength and conditioning coach's point of view, you know, that's going to definitely keep us in a job. Um, and yeah, just that things might fluctuate. And that's something for coaches, parents and the athletes to be aware of. So, yeah, don't don't kind of panic. Maybe if you start to see a bit of a, a decrease in performance, you know, it might come back up naturally. Um, but also just, I suppose, being a, a little bit aware of, you know, around potentially that circa pubertal um, point in time where you know we, we might be seeing some rapid increases in growth um, what's happening from a performance perspective but this isn't something I looked on specific looked at specifically with my PhD but you know from, from the reading around and, and everything else you know we've got to be a little bit um, careful around that point and make sure you know we're monitoring what's happening so um, do we need to kind of strip back some of the in gymnastics, for example, some of those advanced skills while they're going through that stage and, and make sure that, you know, the quality of the movements are, are still there. Um, do we need to focus a little bit more on strength at that point um, just whilst they're going through that um, pubertal growth spurt, really? So, 
uh, yeah, definitely some some interesting stuff, I think, from an injury point of view and the, the future to look at. But. And obviously you, you were specifically looking at, at youth female gymnasts. In terms of some of those results of, of kind of the, the outputs of absolute um, force and relative force, how does that compare to some of the kind of literature that's out there looking at male populations? I, obviously, as you've alluded to already, there's a bit of a difference in terms of um, when a female matures and the fat mass versus potentially more lean mass in a male population. Now, what are some of the kind of nuances there between the two? Yeah, I to be honest, I haven't fully looked at some of the male population with the isometric midlife pool. I'm not sure how much there is out there, but intuitively we know that, you know, they're probably going to get that neuromuscular spurt that females might not as much. So I'd imagine that their relative strength probably does improve a little bit. It might not. I'm just kind of inferring that here, but um, I'd imagine they're going to get greater kind of increases in, in absolute and relative um, but yeah, it would be would be interesting to look at kind of the male comparison, definitely. Yeah, I think that's one of the things. Often when we talk about growth and maturation, we end up just talking about male athletes and talking about testosterone and, and lean muscle tissue. And I think it's important, you know, as we're trying to highlight with this series, to look at females in in isolation, away from that, and say, okay, what's happening here in terms of growth and development, and that you know puberty happening a little bit earlier, and how that's affecting both absolute and relative strength and. Um, I think the work that you've done here is really important because it does, as you've alluded to already, there's a big gap there. Um, mm. And, you know, the more information we have there, the better decisions we can make and the more informed we can be with, with young female athletes. So I think what you've, what you've done here is really important. So moving into, obviously, we've kind of come to the conclusion, okay, we know we're going to get a little bit from growth and maturation. And then there's some that perhaps we can manipulate through training, which leads nicely into your training study. So what was the setup for that? And how long did that run? What were some of the results? Oh. It was a <laughs> it was a big setup for that one, if I'm really honest. And yeah, well, well, we're here. I have to say that there was probably probably about 30 people involved with um, overall over the the, the 10 month period. Um, so uh, massive, massive study and a massive team effort from all the people at um, the Youth Physical Development Centre. So from you know, I had four interns working alongside me, plus. Um, Rodri was helping me out with a couple of the sessions as well and then the kind of big testing days that was all our hands on deck as well so big effort but basically what we did was we had three groups set up because the gymnasts were training um, on average about 11 hours a week we wanted to make sure that we could um, differentiate between kind of a maturity match group of just girls that weren't doing gymnastics um, so just looking at, you know, how, what happens to their measures as they just carry on doing what they're doing. They were physically active, but um, not doing any gymnastics. And we had a group of gymnasts that weren't doing the training, um, but they were doing probably around 11 hours of gymnastics a week. So a bit of a training stimulus there, obviously. And then we had the uh, training group and they were doing on average again, 11 hours a week but they were doing two hours of strength and conditioning, um, two sessions a week. So one hour, twice a week um, with me. And um, yeah, we did a 10 month training study in the end and uh, we took baseline measures and then approximately every kind of three to four months we um, retested. So all in all, there were four testing sessions um, and we had to be a little bit selective, but we, we basically ran all this, the tests that we did before in the cross-sectional study. So big kind of battery of testing, um, 
various strength and power measures and speed and vaulting. Um, and then, yeah, we, we kind of saw how the training affected them as they went on. And I suppose there was quite a big gap in, in knowledge, obviously in gymnastics, but also out there in, in kind of youth in general. These kind of longer term training studies are, are quite hard to do and are quite kind of hard to come by as well. So that was another thing. Um, and then the other big gap was that transfer to their gymnastics performance. So often, you know, with strength and conditioning coaches, we, we hope that things have a transfer, but we don't actually know if they do and, and when they do. So having that kind of vertical takeoff velocity from the vaulting performance was something that was, again, a, a big ask in terms of the study and the setup, but was really worth it to see whether or not it did have that transfer to their performance. Um, so yeah, all the kids had no training experience previously. Um, so for me, one of the, the big things in that first term of training, which was around 12 weeks, was building you know, good relationships with them and getting the buy-in because from a, yeah, an LTAD point of view, you know, I want them to have a positive experience of strength and conditioning um, early on and, and hopefully then they'll buy into the, the study and SNC moving forwards. Um, so that was a big one. And then we just had to spend a, you know, a really long time just focusing on movement competency. So we did an, an eight week block on, on just that, just trying to, you know, get them moving well, um, going through all the um, AMSEs, so the athletic motor skill competencies. Can they squat? Can they lunge? Can they hinge? You know, can they push, pull, all those sorts of things um, and, and just getting their technique kind of really good. And then that kind of just involved mainly bodyweight stuff um, with, you know, some, some light loads. Um, and then the, the kind of next part of that was getting them, you know, used to being in the gym. So just general health and safety, how do you set the bar? Um, all those sorts of things. These girls were on average about nine years old. Um, so yeah, quite young, um, doing all of that. And then as the kind of study progressed, we were able to, you know, use higher loading schemes with them um, as their technical competency improved and as they got stronger, you know, we could add some more load, um, started doing a bit more kind of explosive movements in turn two. So introducing um, some ballistic stuff, some, some kind of weightlifting derivatives, some really like basic weightlifting derivatives. So just some jump shrug work and, and things like that and some, Kind of lower level plyos and then towards the end of the, the study um, the, the kind of final term we did a little bit more speed work um, some kind of more intense plyometrics um, but still kept that kind of high strength stimulus throughout um, because that was something that we again if we were looking at the gymnast as a whole what are they not getting in their training they're doing you know loads and loads of body weight stuff but they're not actually getting that kind of high force high load really um in their training so yeah that was the kind of flow of the the training study um and what we actually found was that you know after the, the first term we saw um some improvements in absolute isometric mid-dipole um peak force um as well as um, some sprinting momentum stuff um but that was only in the training group and then um as the study went on, 
from about kind of seven month point, we saw some significant improvements in the training group um, with the jump height from the counter movement jump and the RSI was improving and the drop jump. So that was quite nice to see some of those changes. But then it actually took kind of the whole 10 months to see uh, that transfer to their gymnastics performance. So at the kind of 10 month point, we saw um, significant improvement in their vertical takeoff velocity. Um, we saw improvement in their drop jump spring light behavior, their, their peak speed. Um, so that was cool. Um, but just a, a really important note that it does take a bit of time to potentially transfer to their performance. And then the gymnastics group, uh, they only really made significant improvements after 10 months and only in the drop jump kind of spring-like correlation and some absolute um, strength there as well. Um, and those were kind of the only changes. And then the control group, we just didn't really see anything. Um, oh, I should also have added that in the um, training group, we saw significant improvements in that relative strength from, from six months onwards. So that was a big win for us in terms of okay, that was something that wasn't improving with maturation. We can, you know, target it and we can actually get good adaptations in that measure um, with, some, with some good training, really. So, yeah, mm, Sorry, there's, a, there's a lot of information. It was a no, 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 it's great. study there. <laughs> it's brilliant. I mean, but, first of all, anyone who's involved in any sort of training study will take the hat off um, because as, as you've alluded to, and, you know, often people are quick to point out, well, there's not enough training studies or that, you know, there's um no one's looked at this or that and that's because as you as you've highlighted from the off it takes a lot of of man hours to get them done um and you know as you alluded to as well in the first eight weeks trying to get that buy-in because you know i've got to keep this kid engaged for 10 months if we want to get that far there's no good getting nine months in and we've not got anyone left yeah. um, so training studies are, are probably one of the hardest things you can do um because you're dealing with human beings whose commitments change whose enthusiasm changes and etc so first of all you know highlighting the, just the achievement it is to complete a 10 month training study is massive um but then as you've kind of shown through there i thought it was really interesting um what you said about spending just eight weeks on movement competency because i think it's something uh that might interest people because we kind of often look at gymnastics as being the king of movement competency mm. you know a, a very aesthetic sport that's subjectively scored um it's all about body shapes and looking a certain way and moving a certain way and mm. to me i kind of want to highlight if it's if it's that important to spend eight weeks with gymnasts who are already probably pretty good movers yeah. to get that stuff right it's even more important with team sport athletes or athletes who don't come from a sport that's highly aesthetic or subjectively scored that's just outcome based of can you get the ball over the line or in the goal or whatever so the fact that you spent eight months on movement competency with a group that are probably already quite competent movers yeah. i think is really interesting yeah i think you're i think you're really right there and i think you know we all it'd be easy for us to want to you know jump the gun a little bit and, and get straight into lifting weights and doing this this and this but but actually it really paid off that time because we spent a lot of time you know really getting their movement patterns spot on really and then when it came to adding the load it was kind of just made it a little bit sim more simple really um and although the gymnasts you know they've got amazing body awareness they've got great mobility um it's really really good but there are some differences um obviously in in snc you know what they would usually do as a, a squat would be feet together um squat down a little bit they're really used to doing things like dish shapes and art shapes and they don't really know what a neutral posture is so we, you know we had to spend a little bit of time their landings as well um 
you know trying to get them used to saying well you know when you're in the gym we we want you to land like this um okay in your in your other training you might have to land like that but when you're in the gym with us this is how we're going to land and this is why and, and this is what we're doing so um yeah i think that's a, a really key message to to all these coaches really just take the time and and try and make it as fun as possible you know integrate some of the games that you can do um just yeah keep it interesting really and and really i'm sure you have people on here saying this all the time but you know load is really a reward um and it's you know something that we obviously want the kids to to progress towards but you know you can't you have got to earn that right and you have got to um make sure that you're moving well um and you're training strength alongside it really so mm. the two together is, is really important yeah and i think there's also a couple of good messages in that in, in terms of what you're saying about potentially taking the whole 10 months to see the benefit that like strength and conditioning isn't a six-week pre-season block no. or a one-month thing that you do before you then go and do you know your your team sport stuff or whatever that it is it is a bit of an ongoing commitment yeah definitely and i think that's how it needs to be seen really um and that's one of the messages coming out of the, the phd study really is you know you might not see transfer to performance for seven ten months like obviously we looked at the tiniest aspect of their, their whole performance but um in this in this situation that's how long it took um so getting the buy-in from the parents the gymnasts and the technical coaches to just say okay you know this might not be a, a short-term win for you but if you buy in if you commit long term you know you can you can see some really really good changes um so yeah that was that was pretty cool um but also from that study again we kind of highlights from the the female population in general that over 10 months we didn't really see any changes um in in the kids that weren't doing gymnastics um and weren't doing the training so you know i think snc will obviously be able to have a positive effect on on that for for um girls of, of not doing any sport so um yeah that was pretty it was pretty good um definitely a challenge learned learned loads from it um just was a, a really really positive and, and worthwhile experience and yeah i think um i mean i'm still it's not published yet but it, it's in the pipeline um and there'll be hopefully lots of different studies coming out of it moving forwards but um yeah i think the message would really be that strength and conditioning can help gymnasts um it needs to be seen as a, a a kind of option for them um and again it's one of those sports where the technical coaches do so much of the training which is all really sport specific and you know that's their kind of bag the physical prep and and all that stuff they do with them is so important and that can't be underestimated but you know can and can an expert in in this area add benefit and i think hopefully the answer is yes mm. and i think there's one other thing that kind of strikes me which is it kind of puts to bed that kind of I guess uh, myth or, or rumor that there's no point doing this stuff with kids because they won't benefit until they're 15 16 like if I'm right you said one of the, your youngest was as young as nine in the training study or they're roughly nine like you're seeing yeah. some changes from a training perspective at that age so effectively if we're choosing to say no we're not going to touch this for five six seven years well you're kind of leaving improvements on the table yeah definitely and you know I think yeah I think the average age was nine I had the youngest was six she was she was the youngest and then I think upper end of that was 12 or 13 um so yeah I think changes 
one of the ones one of the things I do want to look at is the kind of individual responses so at the moment we we've kind of just looked at kind of group means but it's going to be quite interesting to see if we look at from an individual point of view you know how many were positively responding to the training how many were weren't really responding and how many you know responded a little bit so that would be quite interesting and I think the sample size is was only well, what did we end up with 16 in the training group so not a huge um not a huge sample size but I think moving forward it would be yeah it would be amazing to have you know large sample sizes and, and looking at well you know how how's the um less mature kids you know responding compared to the more mature are they both responding in a similar way and um, John Radner's done uh, a little bit of research on that looking at you know the effects of different training on on responses in different um in boys of different maturity stages so yeah uh, lots lots and lots to still be still be done and, and look at but yeah i'm not sure i'm ready for another full-on training study for a while <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i mean even within that like as we've kind of discussed already obviously gymnastics tends to opt for that later maturing body anyway so if you've got kids between you know that range of six to 13 it's highly likely that some of them are probably later maturing compared to a normal controlled population anyway so the fact that they're that young chronologically and probably towards the the you know later maturing end biologically suggests there's actually quite a lot of there's a lot of benefits to be had from engaging in this sort of training as well as your technical sport training yeah i definitely think so um and yeah, it's 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 kind of how you do it, isn't it? And it's it's getting that buy-in. Um, because one thing I did find quite interesting was, you know, their cognitive maturity playing quite a big part in it. So that that little six-year-old that I'm talking about, she was so cognitively mature. She could follow instructions really well. She was really good at listening. She was really like try hard. And then you know you had a bit of a spectrum there of, of some of the girls that, you know, a couple of them were were weren't that maybe engaged. Um, or could have been more engaged and um i wonder if i start looking at the individual responses you know can i pick out maybe the ones that didn't respond um weren't really you know engaging as much so i think that really um is a strong message that we need them to be cognitively mature enough as well to engage in the training um and that might not be that might not be until they are kind of nine ten years old but if they're not maybe you've got to go down you kind of got to I suppose use your use your coach and how and, and basically say well what is going to engage them is it literally for for them just some like constraints constraints based games is it something that's you know less looking like what we'd call traditional s and c for for that population that can still get them engaged and still get them some improvement but it's not maybe your traditional training so yeah well that leads very nicely to the what i was going to ask you about next which was the fantastic article that you and I think I believe John put out around developing those athletic motor competencies and some of the examples which were very extensive literally an A to Z of animal <laughs> shapes and things like that that was a fantastic article I think probably every youth coach should dig into that because you'll come out with oodles and oodles of sessions that you can put together to do those exactly as you've mentioned maybe a less structured um, yeah. kind of program but talk us through that what was what was the thought process behind putting that together and and what was that like? Yeah, do you know what? It was something that we've we've had in the pipeline for years. We were all kind of Rodri and um, Rob kind of started the the animal shapes A to Z stuff and and that sort of thing. And then you know when John and I started joining the team, we started looking at a kind of body weight chart almost and like how you could progress things in terms of 
either intensity or kind of complexity of, of skills. Um, so if you don't want to, if you don't have the, you know, facilities to maybe, you know, add weight or whatever, well, how can you change these movements to make them a little bit more complex and still challenge them? So um, we've kind of all been using our own little resources for a while. And then, yeah, I think John really tried to think, well, you know, I think this could be a really, really beneficial training tool for hopefully lots of coaches out there. Why don't we turn it into an actual paper? So yeah, everybody was kind of doing their own little thing and then we we brought it all together. Um, but yes, I suppose one of the key messages from that really is that, you know, you can disguise this type of training in lots of different forms. You know, you can, you know, disguise squatting movement patterns and doing some gymnastic stuff, you know, when they're jumping and landing or, you know, you can disguise them in your normal playground games, just make them a little bit S&C focused. But don't just have a game actually have a purpose to that game um and what we it kind of had a bit of transfer over into some of the stuff that I did with the gymnasts you know if I'm if I'm planning on doing some squatting patterns in the session can I incorporate you know an engagement task at the beginning or can I incorporate um some partner balance work that involves squatting to kind of get them ready for the the next part of the session so just kind of yeah I suppose using trying to use non-traditional kind of tools really to to get kids enjoying gymnastics and doing it um not just gymnastics but other types of things so we did like um obstacle courses and um, partner work and, and lots of different things that was you know quite fun for the kids but actually beneficial as well yeah i think that's really important for because you know we can put out um, research studies that say okay this stuff's really beneficial and we can know that you know athletes will benefit from it even at a young age or male or female or whatever but for a lot of times the, the grassroots coach around the corner can't really go well, i don't know what that looks like in my warm-up or i don't know you know i really want to do this stuff but i don't have the expertise to know how to put that session together or what sort of things i should be including and that's why i think that is literally like an encyclopedia of look yeah. here's here's some stuff to look to include even if you did it five to ten minutes every session you'd be ticking off a lot of boxes and i think the resource you put together there is fantastic and i, I would definitely recommend everyone go and download that and have a look and obviously it's free to access so it's you know really really yeah. useful yeah definitely and i think i think we've touched upon this yet but you know those athletic movement competencies are, are really designed to make well-rounded young athletes um so I alluded to this earlier on, but, you know, if you've got somebody or if you've got a child that's only really participating in one sport, um, that's quite biased towards certain parts of the athletic movement, motor skill competencies, well, maybe you could include a couple of the ones they're not doing in the warm up, um, just to try and really kind of make them round, well rounded. And, you know, John always jokes with me because I cannot throw and catch at all. Like I, I'm awful at that sort of thing, just all all kind of body management, all that sort of stuff, really good. But, you know, that was something that I was quite aware of, again, with the gymnast, you know, we, we'd finish sometimes with like a game of football in the gym, just because I was like, well, let's give them something a little bit different. You know, it's so random, but they really enjoyed it. And it's a, a little bit of exposure to something that they're not getting. Um, so, yeah, look at those, maybe those AMSCs, and I'd say try and target a couple of things they're not doing as much of, if you can, even in just the warm-ups or at the end of the session. Fantastic. So what's coming up next for you in the next 12 to 18 months? So have you got any other projects in the pipeline or any role oh, changes, etc.? So I think, the, well, the first thing is I've just started a, a new lecturing post at Cardiff Met. Um, so 
I'm about to probably we started all the planning stage of that so I've got to try and get my head around that for the next year so uh, that's the the job in terms of that but um I've been working with a gymnastics club called uh, Valley's Gymnastics Club um and they are really kind of a forward-thinking gymnastics club and I've been working with them doing a little bit of S&C with them for the past couple of years and they've recently just got their they've just turned the changing room into an S&C gym which oh, is like it's a big statement a big statement yeah big amazing statement and I think if I look back probably five years ago that would have been the dream to have a gymnastics club that's bought into S&C and has now got a strength and conditioning gym in their gym so we are now in we've done what six weeks of training in the gym so I think really um moving forward just keeping on doing a bit of work with that raising the profile still of, of S&C and then from a research perspective get some training study data out there um quite excited to be on um a PhD project looking at an injury slant in gymnastics so we've got a PhD student called and Emma, who I've just joined her team, and she's looking at injury risk factors in gymnastics. Um, so that'd be nice to be a little bit involved in that, really. Um, and yeah, we'll see see what else. <laughs> Fantastic. So where can people find out more about your, your research and your work? Is there any relevant places to point people towards be it social media or your research gate profile, etc.? Yeah, yeah. So I've got a research gate profile. It's probably just my name. Um, but Twitter as well. I try and post some of the, the studies if um, if they get published. So Twitter handle is Sylvia Moosecops. Um, good luck spelling that. I'm sure um, you can see my name, I'm sure, when you, you post this out there to, to spell all of that. Um, but then I also have a, an Instagram page uh, just with some of the SNC stuff I'm doing with the gymnast. So that's um, project underscore spring underscore gymnast. Um, and yeah, just post little bits and bobs that we're doing with the gymnast on there as well. So yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for, for what I know will have been a lot of blood, sweat and tears over the last few years to get such a valuable piece of research out there, because you know, as we alluded to, it's uh, training studies are incredibly time intensive and effort intensive. And I'm sure there was a lot of problem solving and barriers and hurdles to get over. So well done for getting that done and, and getting it out there, because it's some really useful information for people. There. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, yeah, I've got one take home messages that, you know, get the long-term buy-in and that these adaptations might while they were kind of time sensitive they didn't all come within the first eight weeks and they were really um i suppose specific to the demands of what we were doing in the program so yeah basically just get that long-term buy-in and, and hopefully you'll see you'll reap the benefits fantastic well thanks so much time for you uh, for your time this morning it's been brilliant chatting with you and wish you all the best for the, the future research coming up Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, there's a number of simple things you can do to help support the podcast. First, hit subscribe on your chosen podcast player so you're kept up to date with the latest episode releases. Second, you can leave us a review to help us reach more coaches and parents like yourself. Third, you can send this episode on to a coach or friend to help spread the word. And then fourth, you can find us on social media.